Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mehrfrazan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Sonu Beatty, the Joel Parker 1811 Professor in Law and Political Science, and the Hans and Kate Morse Director of the Ethics Institute at Dartmouth. Professor Beatty is the author of four books and has published articles in leading peer-reviewed journals in political science and political theory, as well as in numerous law reviews. He was awarded the Jerome Goldstein Award for Distinguished Teaching twice, chosen by a vote of the Class of 2014 and the Class of 2017. His research interests are in the areas of contemporary political theory, constitutional law and theory, race, law and identity, and he most recently delivered the Constitution Day Lecture at Dartmouth titled The Science of the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and a Practice of Disagreement. Professor Beatty, we're excited to have you with us on the podcast. Great. Thank you for having uh, me, Shadi. I appreciate it. Yeah, so you obviously study the Supreme Court and their work quite a bit, um, and it's safe to say that they're a very unique part of the federal government and for a variety of reasons. Um, Keeping this in mind, how do you think um, the reality of what the Supreme Court does is maybe a little bit different than what the average person might think about when they kind of lump the work of the judicial branch with like the rest of government? Yeah, that's a great question, Shadi. And let me also say Shadi is a co-editor of the Dartmouth Law Journal here uh, at Dartmouth. And so she has a real keen interest in law. Uh, and so it's really nice to be talking with uh, her. Uh, so, yeah, so most folks, when they sort of have this sense about uh, the court, they may just see these justices as um, politicians, as they're just like any other kinds of politicians and the Supreme Court It's just like any other branch of the federal government. Uh, And uh, sort of one way to see that that's not the case is that unlike the other branches of government, the Supreme Court historically has always issued opinions where they discuss and justify, uh, uh, you know, uh, their conclusion about what the Constitution means. And so that's why sometimes we may look at the very bottom line of, oh, what is it that they said, you know, is the law constitutional or unconstitutional, but they don't simply just say this law is constitutional or this law is unconstitutional. They spend pages and pages of, uh, 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 you know, pages justifying that. And it's that principle justification that allows them this power uh, to say what the Constitution is. They don't have the power of the sword. They don't have the power of the purse. In one sense, they have the power of this word. And so it's important for us to see that and not conflate it uh, with the other branches. Yeah, definitely. And I guess what they do in terms of providing these opinions, you know, can be tilted, you know, some, I think people conflate that sometimes, you know, with a political party, for example, just because it seems like they're providing, you know, an opinion on how a law should be like, I guess, um, an opinion that reflects something of the people rather than uh, an opinion that reflects, you know, an interpretation of the law. And so, you know, when, when people kind of conflate those two things, I guess, what do you normally tell them or what, what kind of guidance do you provide um, or what kind of philosophy do, do you kind of provide that helps, you know, make that distinction very clear? Yeah, so that's a great question, Shadi. And so it's something that, you know, I'm constantly seeking to clarify in a way that, you know, makes sense. And so one way to look at it is to say, okay, we can line up various kinds of Democrat and Republican positions or talking points and see that those often do not line up uh, always with the justices' political philosophy in deciding a particular case. And so take, for example, uh, uh, the idea that uh, the state of California 
uh, uh, passed legislation declaring it was a sanctuary state, meaning it was not going to cooperate with the federal government in terms of uh, undocumented immigrants uh, and in terms of that, feat, that part of immigration law. Well, this was during the Trump administration. And so the Trump administration sued the state of California, saying that the state of California uh, it's unconstitutional. The state of California has to cooperate with the federal government in this way. And the Circuit Court of Appeal said, no, it doesn't. And uh, the main author of an opinion, of the opinion that established this was Justice Scalia. Uh, and so the idea is, is that uh, states are not obligated under the document uh, to cooperate uh, uh, with the federal government in terms of their own officers and their own executives. And so as a result, there's this principle that the federal government may not commandeer uh, states in that way. And so one may look at that and say, oh, well, that was decided by uh, a justice that has a judicial philosophy that may not sometimes align with what Democrats favor, but then in certain cases it does. And so that suggests that what's going on in the court is not uh, uh, some kind of Democrat or Republican argument, but something uh, more significant, something uh, uh, more fundamental, some kind of political philosophy that is independent in a way of politics. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And it's, it's an important distinction to make when you're talking about it's very important and, and different part of the, of the, of the government. Um, kind of moving towards the Constitution itself, you know, the Constitution itself is a very interesting and unique document itself because um, I believe it, it's it's shorter than a lot of you know constitutions around the world um, of other countries. And I think you see some other constitutions, see pages and pages of documents. And we have something that I think you put on your wall here, just like something that's very you know you could fit it on one giant paper if you wanted. So I guess what how, I guess how is our Constitution unique, and how how has that you know affected how has that guided our country you know through all the things it's gone through and, and kind of change that? Shadi, that's such a nice question because because the Constitution is in a way relatively concise, part of the idea was is that when the Constitution was ratified, it was read by Americans, not just lawyers and not just justices. And so the idea is our Constitution is one that uh, we can all in a way access. It's not sort of set up to be this um, real complicated document, uh, but rather something that ordinary any Americans uh, can read. Of course, what that also means is because the document isn't concise, there are a lot of questions that aren't answered in it. Uh, and so this is why justices on the court are the ones that are deciding and answering these questions. Uh, and when they're answering those questions, they're engaging, they often disagree. Uh, but uh, the idea is, is that so it's, it's, it's the fact that it's concise, uh, both lends uh, its accessibility, but also uh, invites the very kind of disagreement that often is seen as, as a bug. You know, folks often look at that disagreement and say somehow that's a problem with the document. And it's important to see that that's not a problem, but actually a feature of the document. That's what's been going on since 1789. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of disagreement then unique to the US judicial system? Yes, yeah, that's a great. So, look, I'm not an expert in other constitutional regi regimes, but my sense is, is that the way this constitution sets up and makes disagreement a feature of it is it is distinctive. And uh, you know, I'm not sure there's another written constitution that does that. Uh, and so, consider this: I think Americans are probably the most litigious 
uh, society. We always are, you know, filing lawsuits and going to court. I don't think other countries do that. Well, that's because there is a sense in which the rule of law, uh, because we have this written constitution, uh, is distinctive. And we have the oldest still functioning written constitution in the world. Let's not forget that. Uh, and I know sometimes in these political, you know, with some of sometimes when it's so divisive politically, we can forget to see that. Uh, and so uh, I would ask sort of the listeners here to, um, you know, not forget that, that it's been still functioning since 1789. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. That such a short document prone to so much disagreement has lasted so long relative to, you know, it's, it's other other similar documents and to flip that i guess around like how what about our judicial branch aside from the document itself has allowed our constitution for to endure us for as long as it has yeah so one way to see it shoddy is that our justices sit all just all federal judges sit uh they have life tenure uh, uh and so in a way it's kind of like academic tenure uh so they as a result uh, don't have to, uh, um, you know, uh, run for office. They don't have to run for their position once they are confirmed uh, on the Supreme Court or once uh, the Senate confirms all federal judges. Uh, and once they are confirmed, they sit for life. So as a result, they, in a way, look at the long game. So what may seem on one hand to be uh, a decision that at that time is looked at in one way, you could see how uh, you know, years later, it's looked uh, in another. So, for example, the decision I had mentioned uh, that Justice Scalia, uh, um, you know, uh, wrote that was about uh, uh, not being able to commandeer state legislatures or states. Well, uh, you know, that decision was decided, you know, in the 1990s, but now is being used in a way uh, that advances uh, uh, kinds of uh, uh, what Heather Birkin, who's a dean at Yale Law School, calls progressive federalism. And so that's something that may not have been obvious at the time. Well, that's because these justices are not deciding these issues based on, you know, although they have implications for the, the political issue of the day, they're basing it on these enduring political philosophies uh, that have been uh, uh, around since the formation of the document. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um... I mean, we talk about the Supreme Court, you know, and upholding the values of the Constitution, what what was, or or kind of interpreting the values of the Constitution more like. But I guess what role do federal judges and, you know, lower court judges play and, and how, when, when we're thinking about, you know, the role of the judicial branch up at the Supreme Court, like how, what should we also keep in mind about the role of federal judges and the big role that they, you know, play, play in getting these certain topics to the Supreme Court? That's a great question. Now, Shadi, you'll probably, it would be nice you end up being a federal judge or even a justice, right? So if that's the case, then you got to make sure that you're, you take my phone calls and then, you know, you come and talk to students. And so, so yeah. So one way to see it is that the Supreme, that the lower federal judges, there are these circuit judges, and then there are these district judges, their role is simply to enforce what the Supreme Court has said. So they are not, uh, uh, even if, uh, they see something differently, they are obligated under the Constitution to follow what the Supreme Court says. And so it's really the Supreme Court justices that are the ones that are engaging in a kind of practice of disagreement based on political philosophy, because this is a really good, great question. The lower court judges 
although they sometimes in these circuits may disagree, then that disagreement is something that the Supreme Court has to resolve. But generally what the idea is, is that unless the guidance from the Supreme Court is unclear, if the guidance from the Supreme Court says this is the, you know, there's only one Supreme Court. So if you look at the seal of the Supreme Court, there's one star. Although there are nine justices, there's only one Supreme Court. So whatever the Supreme Court says, uh, that goes for uh, all these lower federal judges. Yeah, I mean, I think we, and that's a really good distinction to make, right? Because I think a lot of, you know, the contention around the Supreme Court, whether that's, you know, political contention or, you know, philosophical contention is, is based on, you know, that very unique, um, like, opinion they're able to provide. So I guess based on that, you know, what are some, uh, we, we see, I guess we see a lot of political Coupla around the Supreme Court, and you know, I think that people want to do to change it in different ways. That's like you know, court packing or um, like changing the term length, etc. How do you do? You think that would have those kinds of you know actions aside from the political effects have any effects on you know the ability of the court to uphold the Constitution, or are these kind of you know just lofty ideas that need to be set aside? I guess what how how seriously should we be taking these you know changes? Yeah, and so now Justice Breyer gave a speech at Harvard Law School earlier in the year and was sort of said, said be careful about, you know, uh, uh, adding more justices or doing something that would make what the Supreme Court does look like that they're just politicians rather than engaging in a kind of political philosophy. Now, the Constitution itself does not say the composition of the court. It began, I believe, with six, and it was, it's was it been nine for a while now, but the Constitution doesn't say. So certainly uh, it's not that the, court, the, the Congress uh, couldn't expand uh, the, 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 the number of justices, but if the idea is, is to you know, generate a kind of result, uh, then it does, in one sense, challenge this idea that uh, the Supreme Court is not a political branch. It's not. It is distinctive in the sense that it's writing opinions based on some kind of political philosophy that is separate from politics. And so, you know, I would say that it would be, you know, we got to be careful about you know, rushing ahead with something like that, because, you know, I think oftentimes the Supreme, the Supreme Court is seen as a branch of government that men, most Americans trust. I mean, there's a way in which no matter if you're Democrat or Republican, right, that's why it matters who gets on the Supreme Court. Everyone's like, well, let's see what the court is going to say. Uh, and so everyone looks to the Supreme Court. And you know what? Sometimes the Supreme Court disappoints one group and sometimes it disappoints another. And so part of that is, is that we can't, to have a Supreme Court that uh, never disappoints uh, one political party, I, that's gonna be, uh, um, you know, I'm not sure that's going to uh, advance the idea uh, of uh, the distinctive nature of the court. And yeah, I guess that's the very, you know, important part about that disagreement component, right? Um, I guess like with with that, right, I guess how has, has in, in, in this, these centuries of the existence of the Constitution, you know, has the way the Supreme Court taken uh, cases, made opinions, done their deliberation, changed and evolved or has it been a more recent thing? And, you know, how, how... How, how does that change the nature of their opinions or the way that, you know, they've commented on the Constitution? 
So it's good. So one way to see it is that if you look at the sort of practice of disagreement on the Supreme Court and you see that these justices are, uh, you know, uh, the way I would describe it is that they are, that the Constitution has a commitment to a traditional republic, which is state-centered, where limits on public power are rules, and also a commitment uh, to a modern republic, which is nation-centered and a commitment to limits on public power as standards, you can see that sometimes the court ends up uh, in one direction and other times it ends up in another. So for example, during the Chief Justice, you know, Warren era of the court, uh, the court ended up, you know, passing, uh, uh, you know, ended up decisions that uh, many saw advancing uh, uh, liberal uh, policies. Uh, uh, but one can see that what was going on there uh, was in fact, right, that's often what is said, but what in fact was going on is that the, the court was looking at uh, these limits on public power in terms of the Fourth and Fifth and Sixth Amendments, which are criminal due process, as rules and saying, look, you know, you have a right to attorney, uh, uh, you know, full stop, or, you know, you uh, have these criminal uh, uh, due process uh, rights. And so, you can see that this emphasis on either a traditional or modern republic republic may change over time, but in a way that is to be expected. It would be odd if it turned out that the Supreme Court wasn't moving either in moving back and forth. And so definitely the issues change and evolve and we have new uh, uh, issues that arise under the document, but this toggling between a traditional republic on one hand and a modern republic on the other is really a feature of the court since its inception. I mean, so perhaps in the early on part of the court, uh, these two republics were, uh, uh, that there was, you know, maybe less disagreement, but those two republics were always there, those two political philosophies. And so the idea that we are going to, it makes, it doesn't make sense that we're going to sort of, uh, uh, you know, both are part of the document. So we would want to see uh, the way in which in that sense, there's a balance, one moving in one direction, uh, the traditional Republic moves us, uh, you know, modern Republic moves us forward, traditional Republic moves us backwards, but in a way that that balance has always been there. And so we can see that historically. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that, you know, that, again, that has remained, you know, a very critical part of our government and 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 how we are able to do things that we do every day. And you know, with that said, like, just, you know, like a final, like, I guess, summary, like, what is something that, you know, either other parts of the government can learn from the Supreme Court in, in how they contribute to governing or, or vice versa? Like, is there something, you know, the Supreme Court has to learn from, like, I don't know, Congress or... That's a real good question. I, I, and so in one way, hmm, like I will say what's nice about the Supreme Court is they don't allow their oral arguments to be televised. You also don't have the justices on Twitter. They're not posting on, you know, uh, you know, tweets and things like that, uh, because the idea is, is that they're there when they engage in their role as justices, they're engaging in this sort of principle justification of writing opinions. So perhaps maybe one thing that folks in Congress can learn would be like, you know, it isn't so much about the soundbite. And so I understand that given our technological events, in a way, uh, there's always a rush to sort of you know, just capture some sh- something in a way that's, you know, maybe simplistic just to get clicks or to get eyeballs on it. Uh, and maybe a way to sort of, you know, you know, step back. Uh, and so now you ask a good question is whether the Supreme Court could learn something. Um, uh, you know, that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if 
I, you know what? I do see that the Supreme Justices often make public speeches. So if you just look at it this last year, you have Justice Breyer, Justice Barrett, and Justice Thomas have all sort of come out saying we are not politicians. And so I do see that that is a nice way of going proactively making clear to Americans that what it is that justices do. Because I think it's important to say that part of what sort of my scholarly work is about and seeing the science of the constitution is to sort of make clear what's going on. So maybe justices could do more of that, making clear, okay, this is what we do. We, we're not about politics. So then what are we about? What are the ways in which we are interpreting the document and how do we see disagreement as a feature of the document? And so you know, explaining that uh, uh, to Americans so that they are, you know, we have a sense of that uh, could be one way to go. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, the Supreme Court has something to learn from, I guess, for example, I guess the legislative branch, for example, in the sense that, you know, like they are very actively communicating what they do and how they, like how they do it, you know, very publicly and keeping that very transparent. But at the same time, you know, like, this, there's a there's a beautiful thing about the Supreme Court and the way they interpret laws that, you know, words really matter. And so there that that the fact that the words on paper still mean so much is, you know, a very, it's a very beautiful thing, actually. So Charlie, uh, that's so that's spot on that words yeah. matter. In fact, that's crucial. That, that's actually a, a really nice way of saying what the role of the, the court is in our system. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Um, I've really enjoyed our chat and to all our listeners. Thank you for being here. We'll see you later. Thank Bye. you for having me, Shadi. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.